Well, good evening. <clears throat> We're going to uh, return to the book of Ruth, and uh, uh, because of that, and I know I'm doing chapter 4, but I thought I'd get a little greedy. Uh, I thought instead of having one reading, I would have four readings. So I'm glad that the guys at the back are prepped for this. Uh, we're going to have four readings because what I want to do is just take a, take a tiny piece uh, out of each of the four chapters uh, to try and get the, the sense of where we're landing in chapter four. So our first reading is from chapter one. It's from verse 20 to 21. So that's Ruth 1, 20 to 21. And this is what it says. She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. For Shaddai has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and Yahweh has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when Yahweh has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? That's chapter 1. I have a second reading from chapter 2, this time from verses 4 and 5. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, Yahweh be with you, and he answered, Yahweh bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And then moving on to chapter 3, this time I've got a reading from verse 9 and 10. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by Yahweh, my daughter. You have made this latest chesed greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And then finally, from chapter 4, going from verses 14 all the way through to 17. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be Yahweh, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Amen. Well, uh, the last two evening services, we've had the opportunity to look, to look at the book of Ruth, and it is a remarkable book. Uh, but I think it's a particularly remarkable book when we're aware of what the book is really all about. Uh, when I started this sort of mini-series on Ruth, uh, I felt it was really important uh, to establish at the beginning uh, that this book is not to be read like some sort of uh, Disney story. Instead of a book uh, about uh, the rescue of Ruth by her prince Charming, we have a book that describes how the prince of peace comes and rescues Naomi. We have a book that centers on a god who looks at this old widow who has no discernible social value, who has nothing, who's on the scrap heap, and he says to Naomi, I value you. I love you. I am not finished with you. Naomi, I've got a job for you to do. And so by the time we get to chapter 4, we have this wonderful story of a rescue of a broken woman, ultimately leading to her restoration. But before I can really do chapter 4, the, the pinnacle of the book, I think we need to appreciate what we have in chapters 1, 2, and 3 that lead us there. So, uh, 
If you wouldn't mind, I'll start at chapter 1. When we were looking at chapter 1 a couple of weeks back, I made the point that it's really important for us to really see Naomi. To see the suffering that she endured. She's not a prop for a later love story. She is the story. The book of Ruth begins and ends with Naomi, and it is by seeing that it is God reaching out to her that we begin to understand the book. The last time I spoke, I highlighted the fact that this is not a book about the rescue of Ruth or through finding a good man. Uh, Indeed, I I made the point then, and I will repeat it again, uh, the the social attitudes of the time, the culture that looked at this woman who, as a a widow, as, as one who had lost her children, and therefore was worthless, was wrong. It is an attitude uh, that we sometimes, maybe subconsciously, maybe accidentally include in some of our Christian circles. Uh, But it is important for us to remember that a woman does not gain value because she gets married. She doesn't gain value because she is able to give birth. Rather, every single woman, and I may add every single man, has an inherent value given to them at birth from the hand of God himself. And it doesn't matter what takes place after that. Nothing can take away that value that he gives. Uh, I think I said last time, uh, I used uh, Sarah as my example. It's it's a good example. Uh, Sarah, the the wife of Abraham. Now, when she was being described, it could have been, oh, no, she's the wife of Abraham. That he is the most important man in the region. He is the richest man in the region. He is a man who is being called by God. He is a man who is going to be used in the plans of God for the salvation of the world. Could have done that. Uh, Of course, they could have said, she is the mother of Isaac, you know, the great child of promise from whom will stretch a line all the way through to the Messiah. They could have done that. But instead, in Genesis 17, 17, she is described as 90 years a daughter. (laughs) There was an inherent value given to her at birth that made all these other things pale into insignificance. And so let me just repeat, it is important that we see this. It's important that we realize that a woman will bring value to being a wife, value to being a mother, rather than the roles giving her value. That's really, really important. It's vital to important, particularly as by the time we get to chapter 4, there is to be a wedding and a birth. And so it's very easy for us to forget the lesson. Uh, We see the wedding, we see the child, and we think, oh, and they lived happily ever after. (laughs) It's got that kind of feel to it. Uh, And when we do that, we miss the point. You see, everything that has happened to Ruth means that she brings value to the marriage. Everything that has happened to Naomi and the rescue of Naomi means that when she holds Obed in her arms, she brings value to raising him. These two women are going to carry a line that will go on to the rescue of nations. They have a role from God himself, a part to play in his great plans. And so when society would have dismissed them and ignored them, 
God does not erase them from his story. He gives them a vital role. But that's still to come. I realize I'm supposed to be in chapter 1. So, by the end of chapter 1, Naomi, she is in ruins. And so, therefore, I thought, if I'm to take a text out of chapter 1 to really try and sum up the the, the thrust, the, the way that this is going... I took verses 20 to 21 that I've already read, but let me do it again. She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, bitter. For Shaddai has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and Yahweh brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when Yahweh has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Now, I kept uh, Shaddai in there uh, for a reason. Uh, It's because it's a title of God. It is a title that describes his uh, protective nature. It's a title that describes the fact that he is a God who will provide. And so there is a challenge in here because Naomi, in her pain, is saying that the God who should have looked after her, the God that, that should have provided, has instead broken her. And so she calls herself the bitter one. And it's a poignant moment because we get to the end of the chapter and we have these two widows with a future of utter hopelessness and destitution. Naomi broken and bitter. Which brings us to chapter 2. That's why at the beginning of chapter 2, Naomi, she is broken, she is isolated. Uh, Ironically, the hunger that drove uh, uh, Naomi and her family away from Bethlehem at the beginning now lurks at her door. In order to survive, Ruth goes gleaning in a field in order to get a handful of food, to, to stay off starvation for the moment. It was a dangerous activity. These women who are gleaning, uh, they are advertising that they are vulnerable. It made it likely that she could be a victim of a very serious assault at the hands of the men who would recognize that she is utterly unprotected. It's not a position where hope would naturally be found. And so when she returns, she returns not just unharmed, she returns with such a ridiculous abundance of food that there is a turning point in the life of Naomi. Uh, when she sees all of this food, and it's, it is a most ridiculous amount for her to be bringing back, Naomi is struck by it, and in simply saying, oh, well, that's a pretty good haul, she recognizes that this is down to the goodness and love of God. She begins to recognize that God is not finished with her. It's important that we see that the provision is not because of some sort of um, infatuation between Boaz and Ruth, but it is, as the text actually says, and as I picked out last week, it is entirely because of that wonderful word, hesed. That's the word that, that, that's, that's brought out, uh, that I did two weeks ago. The love of God. Uh, when we read this narrative as a love story between Boaz and Ruth, we get it all back to front. It's a love story, yes, but of God for Naomi. But when we get it all wrong, I mean, when we're looking at chapter 2 and the reading that I had in chapter 2, what happens is we very often rush to get to verse 5. We we kind of rush, uh, as it were, to to get to that verse that when it says, then Boaz says to his young man who's in charge of his reapers, why, who is this young woman? 
And you can almost imagine, you know, his eyes catch hers across the field. There's a gleam in his eye. You know, this ravishing beauty is over there. And he goes, who is this woman? That's how we read it very often. Or maybe maybe that's how I read it all too often. Actually, I must confess, I am a hopeless romantic. Um, I think that that's okay. There are plenty of other verses in the Bible that will give me license to be so. It's just not this one. Uh, uh, for example, um, uh, Genesis 29 verse 20, when it's describing uh, the labors uh, of Jacob for Rachel. It's, um, so Jacob served seven years for Rachel and they seemed but a few days because of the love he had for her. I mean, seriously, if that doesn't do something in your heart, then uh, we'll, we'll kind of maybe pray for you after I don't know. But I mean, wow, seven years, just like a, day, just a matter of days, because of the love he has for her. That gets me every time, every time I read that. And there's, there's, there's others. Actually, the one that gets me the most is probably the one about Ezekiel and his wife. Um, Ezekiel 24:16. Uh, in that verse, It's really painful. In that verse, uh, Ezekiel is informed that his wife is going to die. And so she is described. The Hebrew is really strong, but the Hebrew says that for for Ezekiel, she was all that he found beautiful in the world. And then she's gone. And I'll be honest, I'm affected by that every single time I read it. I'm struck every single time. There are so many examples in the Bible where desire and delight in your husband or wife is the right thing. But that's not what's going on here. This love story is different. We have God motivated by love for Naomi through two people who are going to reflect him. So instead of rushing to get to verse 5, well, who's, who is this woman? In actual fact, what we need to do is take our time and look at verse 4. And the reason I say that is that it's quite important that we get to see Boaz a bit. <laughs> um, Willie did a good job last week talking about his, his, his role. I, I want to look at, at the man uh, just briefly. You see, in verse 4, when he comes to the fields, you know, he doesn't just simply greet his men with a hello. Uh, he actually gives them a blessing in the name of God. A blessing is responded to, so that those who work in his field have God on their lips. The text presents at the outset a man uh, who has God in his words. The text will go on to show how he has God in his actions. For this is a man who has a field that is a safe place for the vulnerable. And at the end of the day, Naomi herself describes him as a man not infatuated with Ruth, but a man of chesed, a man who has reflected the love of God. I think sadly all too often, that incredibly powerful word usually gets reduced to something like kindness in our translations. And that's a problem because there are many people in the world who actually manage to be kind without God in their lives. Of course, sometimes they may be kind because they think they might get something out of it. Uh, and very often we cast Boaz as a man who is kind simply because he is infatuated with Ruth. Uh, this is a man, I suppose, who is kind because what lies behind him is God and worshipping God, and showing God in what he does. 
And of course, that same word is, is used to describe Ruth when she gives up everything. Um, so it's chapter 3, verse 10. Uh, when she gives up everything to, to look after Naomi, it's not just a sense of duty or something. It is this love of God. And so what we have here is two people who live their lives for God. What compels Ruth is not duty, it's hesed. For Boaz, what compels him is not infatuation, it's hesed. That's what the text says. Which takes me on to chapter 3. Uh, Ruth returns, as I said, with that inexplicably generous amount of food. It provides a measure of security. I mean, it staves off starvation for the immediate future, but it changes Naomi. And it is at this moment that she realizes that she's not alone. She's not confined to the house simply awaiting death. Um, she actually, uh, between the chapters of 2 and 3, something happens to this woman. She, she is being restored by God until eventually when she emerges, she, she's able again to start really doing things in a God way. Uh, her initial plan is to basically try and give up the one thing she has, which is Ruth. It's quite unthinkable. Uh, Ruth, uh, there's a number of difficulties, of course. Uh, Ruth has no family. She has no, bar, uh, no dowry. She has a history of barrenness. She has a previous marriage, and she's a foreigner. She's not getting married <laughs> to anybody in the region. But, uh, not according to God, not according to Naomi. And so, of course, that whole chapter goes on. And what's really interesting is, is Boaz is chosen not because he's attracted to Ruth, or not because he's financially solvent, but because he is this kinsman, a possible redeemer, and he has shown himself to be a man of Hesed. Naomi's got the measure of the man. She knows what he's going to do. But I think, really, the thing that really captures me in this chapter is the way in which this man of Hesed turns to Ruth and says that she is a woman of Hesed. However, as we saw in the excerpt from this chapter, this, the very brief reading that, that I had, this willingness to marry Boaz was seen to be a greater example of this love of God than everything she had done to that point. Her willingness to marry Boaz. We usually think of it as the other way around, don't we? <laughs> you know, like he was willing to marry her, almost kind of stooping down. But it's really interesting how it's described, that, this, that the, the, the love that she has, this love from God is, is so much that she would be willing to marry Boaz. He says, you know, you could have run off after the, the younger guys, the, the richer guys, but you did not. And um, the, the, again, I mean, you know, she could have pursued the, the Disney ending, the Prince Charming somewhere. And I'll reveal what that really means when we get to chapter 4. The point, though, is that he is talking with this love of God and at this point being even more than everything she had done before. Without Hesed, Ruth would have done the same as Orpah and just left Naomi in the street. Without Hesed, Naomi would be left destitute and alone in that house. Without Hesed, Ruth would never have found the abundance of food. Without Hesed, she would have been in great danger. Naomi would have continued thinking that God had abandoned her completely. And instead, because of Hesed, because of the love of God, reflected in these two people, we have a very different ending. In chapter 4. So let me explain the importance of the marriage of Ruth and Boaz. Well, what was important, she didn't just run off to find someone else. 
You see, oddly enough, um, the law provided for widows. And one of the ways that it provided for widows uh, was that uh, if your husband died, uh, the male, a male relative of that husband uh, could help provide a child with you in order for you to have a future. Interesting, the way it's put, um, again in the Hebrew, the way it's put is that there's, um, the man is required, the woman's not required. <laughs> I think it's a really interesting kind of thing. The man is required to help provide. The main problem, though, is that Naomi's too old. Naomi's past it, and this recourse, this hope that she would have a child that would grow and would be able to look after her in her old age, well, that's not available to her. That opportunity is gone. That glimmer of hope removed. And so Ruth offers herself as a surrogate for Naomi. And that's why Boaz is so surprised. <laughs> that's why Boaz is saying that this is more than you have done up until now. But of course, this is in the plan of God. And so yes, in, in chapter 4, verse 17, the child is called the child of Naomi. She's the one that takes the child. Uh, we dare think that uh, Ruth probably still had an awful lot to do in the background, but it is technically Elimelech's son. But in the plan of God, God doesn't just simply say, that I'm going to rescue Naomi and cast Ruth aside. No, Ruth and Boaz do marry. Uh, Ruth does have a future. Ruth, uh, you know, although Ruth and Boaz disappear from the story, leaving Obed and Naomi front and center, God does more than what the law required. God did more than anyone could have imagined. Uh, that means that what Ruth and Boaz are doing, they're not starting a family, they're rescuing one. They're rescuing the family of Elimelech. And so what happens is the book ends with Naomi holding a child that is her future, but he's also the future of their nation. Uh, this is a child who will lead on to, the, to David, lead on beyond that to another child in Bethlehem. And so what's happening is, the main point of it all is that in chapter 1, we see Hesed reaching out in that embrace that Ruth gives Naomi. And then Hesed in chapter 2 spreads out into Bethlehem in the fields of Boaz. In chapter 3, Hesed continues onto the threshing floor so that by chapter 4, it flows past the city gates and into the very veins of a newborn child. Hesed means that God's fingerprints are all over this and Naomi is restored and ready to do the great task that God has given her. Now, in some ways, I, I really do wish I could stop there. I dare say some of you are thinking the same thing. Uh, but, I mean, you know, you kind of wish you could stop there and they lived happily ever after, right? I mean, you'd think that would be how to, how to finish it off. But the problem is, you know, I mean, yes, we've got this wedding and this birth, and the problem is that we think, oh, well, the women have been rescued because of the wedding, because of the birth. We slip back to that fairy tale ending. But that's not quite the case for two reasons. And the first one's a really important one. I'm afraid that very often by the time we get to chapter 4, by the time we get to Obed, we forget all about chapter 1. 
When I was doing chapter one, I said it was really important that we don't just simply ignore the debris in Naomi's life. We don't just simply step over the agony that that woman was in. We do not just simply ignore the fact that she has lost everyone. And that means that we can't continue to ignore it when we get to chapter four. What I mean is, is Obed does not remove the awful gap left by the loss of Elimelech and her sons. I believe that though Naomi has a child, and she does have that measure of restoration, it could not remove entirely the hurt for what was lost. I mean, let's be honest, that's just not how it works. When you lose somebody, you, you can't just fill the gap with somebody else. Uh, for, for example, I mean, uh, when my dad died, uh, my eldest son Isaac was born almost exactly a year later, almost to the day. And there were many, many people, uh, well-meaning people who'd come up to me and would say something along the lines that, you know, now that I have my son, uh, at least the, the, the gap that my dad had left would be diminished. They're two completely different things. That's not the case. It's never meant to be the case. If someone really mattered to you, then that gap will always be there. I often describe life as, you know, going through life, you know, you start off life hopefully reasonably whole. Um, and by the end of life, you're kind of full with holes, you're just filled with holes by the time you get to the end. And, and, and to make an almost, almost ridiculous example, you know, you know, it's like those cheese you get holes in, like Swiss cheese, you get all the holes in it. They're supposed to be there, they make the cheese, they, 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 they enhance the flavor of the cheese. You don't fill the holes with inferior cheese. That's not the point. They're supposed to be there. By the time you get to the end of your life, you are filled with holes. But they make you who you are. And those people meant something to you. And so you never just get over it. It's a ridiculous phrase. A really good example, actually. The most common example that I've experienced. When a couple miscarry, and into that awful place, you nearly always get told, repeatedly, oh well, you can have another one. But you don't want another one, you want that one. You want the one that you lost, you want the one that you could never hold. You don't want another one. And whatever you do, don't ever say that to people in that terrible place. And when you do have another one, it doesn't replace. It doesn't fill the hole. It's not meant to. That individual is a blessing in and of themselves. And so Naomi holds on to Obed. And she has a hope restored. She has a future. But he is not a replacement. What is lost. And I think that's one of the dangerous things. When we think of it, happy ever after, oh well, she's got a child, everything's okay. There's a danger there. Because then the people around us, we fail to treat in the right way. We fail to recognize what loss is, and we fail to recognize it's not supposed to be just simply replaced. But the second reason why it's not, and they lived happily ever after, 
is because that really misrepresents what's going on in this book. Uh, There is no doubt that the the miracle birth of Obed via the previously barren Ruth is the joyful highlight of the book. It creates the celebration, uh, you know, the means by which the dead-end life of Naomi can be rescued. But Obed is not the turning point for Ruth. The turning point for Ruth is in chapter 1 when she goes with Naomi. Ruth is not in need of rescue. Her life has already got meaning long before the birth. And for Naomi, the turning point was when Ruth came with all that food. Caused her to see that the love of God was still reaching out to her. These women who were unwanted and cast aside by society were rescued by God so that by the time chapter 4 comes around, they provide the value to the wedding and the birth. They are not rescued by them. They bring something to them. So that Naomi, with everything that she's been through, raises Obed. So that her past influences his future. So that everything that she's been through means that in a few generations' time, you'll have a boy who'll stand up to a giant with just a few stones in his hand. (laughs) Everything that they have been through will lead to that king. Uh, They will lead to that line, uh, as I said before, the line of the Messiah. Obed is the beneficiary of Ruth and Naomi's experiences. So, these women are involved in the plan of God and they have this line that goes all the way through to another child born in Bethlehem. I mean, Naomi is probably unaware that the whole world relies on the baby in her arms. Unaware the world waits for the fulfillment of God's promises to redeem his people, we know that Obed is not the last miracle boy in Bethlehem. And so we trace the family line from Obed at the end of the book. But when we go beyond that, we go to Matthew, we trace it on and on, we come to another miraculous birth. And the reason that we rejoice at Christmas, despite the debris in our lives, despite all the holes that might be there, It's because the love of God continued to reach out, not just to Naomi, not just to Obed through Naomi. It's continued to reach out so that when Jesus was born, it was continuing to reach out so that when we can sit here, we can be the recipients of that same love of God. Ruth and Naomi exist so we can have a happily ever after. In the task and plan of God, he rescues them and gives them this wonderful peace to play. So each of us, just as the woman said to Naomi, can have this reality, Yahweh has not left you without a Redeemer. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God indeed who reaches out even now when we read about Naomi, when we read how Ruth and Boaz reflected you and how that spilled out beyond themselves to affect Naomi, we thank you, Lord, that you would look at each and every one of us and see people that need rescuing, but would also see people who can take their place in the story, who have a part to play. We thank you that none of us are left on the scrap heap. We thank you that despite how we may be viewed by anybody else, You value us 
you continue to love us. You restore us and say that we have a part to play in the great story that you are writing. And so I pray, Heavenly Lord, that you would indeed enable us to be a people of Hesed. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen.